most important thing for us is to understand the patterns that are being used to make us be passionate about something. You are listening to the Petzel podcast from Creative Mornings Munich. I am your host, Mark Lindgren. We at Creative Mornings Munich organize monthly breakfast talks covering inspiring topics in the creative community and life in general. This podcast brings creative inspiration and the stories of our speakers closer to you in your ears. Our guest today talked about the theme Transit in the Creative Mornings Munich virtual event in October 2020. To see the talk, visit our show notes, thepretzelpodcast.com. He's a seasoned global design consultant and researcher. He has worked for numerous Fortune 500 enterprises and lived in six countries. He has a knack for storytelling and complex services, and he enjoys designing weird experiences in the fields of AI, virtual reality, and IoT. In his spare time, he produces craft brandies with his wife, performs musical cabaret, and gets delusional about authoring a fantasy trilogy for kids. He is Wolfgang Klein. Stories are um, a natural means of transportation. You know, they transport us to different places. They transport us into other people's minds. They also transport a message. Um, and one of the points that I'm arguing for is that they're also sort of transporting us into a new age. And uh, not only do stories affect um, the way we are entertained, but also the ways in which we get informed and participate in society. Yeah, I think you had a, a four interesting uh, viewpoints to the same uh, theme. You talk about stories, design process, and the dark side. So, what, what is the uh, uh, what do these things like designing for artificial intelligence, writing kids fantasy, uh, starting a conspiracy theory uh, cult? Uh, what do they have in common? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I think uh, first of all, what they have in common, they kind of trigger my brain in some way, um, and I don't know why. You know, so I work as a designer professionally, but I've always written stories uh, in my spare time. You know, I started doing that as a kid and I've always seen those things as something distinct, you know, so um, I wasn't seeing how I could combine the two. But that has really changed in the last couple of years because storytelling is something that a lot of people talk about in their work. And it's also something that I do a lot in my work. Um, not only to convey a message, but also to, for example, uh, make people less scared of AI services. And stories just trigger something in us. So for some reason, uh, our brains are wired to respond to them in a certain way. You know, so we as humans, uh, we have, you know, a certain physique, we have a certain way of communicating, and we also have a certain way of convincing other people of things. And Stories are just such a powerful way of doing that. And like any powerful tool, you can use it for good and for bad. And I think now that the way that we consume information online through social media, through a multiplicity of news, some of them real, some of them fake, um, it's important for you know the emitters of messages to stand out and 
whoever you are, if you use those storytelling tools, your message is going to be perceived by more people in a more profound way. And yeah, in a way, you could compare stories to knives, if you will. You know, um, you can use a knife to cut bread and provide for your family, but also you can use it to stab your neighbor. <laughs> and stories are just the same. You know, you can use it for good and you can use it for bad. And I find that really fascinating. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you also talked about that if the stories go too far, that would be the case of uh, stabbing the knife, uh, stabbing the neighbor with a knife. So what, what what can we do when when and if that happens? Yeah, I think the most important thing for us is to understand the patterns that are being used to make us be passionate about something. So if it's a little bit like um, any means of persuasion, you know, there are people in your job that have a certain way of communicating and somehow they push your buttons and you always feel like the stupid person after you've interacted with that person, you know, because they're just so good at those hidden microaggressions in their language, at uh, twisting your words around, at uh, making you seem stupid. And that can be very frustrating, you know, if those methods are applied or if those tools are applied and you can't quite put your finger on them and you feel like uh, somebody has laid a trap for you and you've stepped right in. And as with any way of um, avoiding traps or pitfalls, the first step is about recognizing them. So if you are a storyteller and you kind of know um, how certain things are being spun in order to trigger an emotion in you, then you're just much more mindful of when they are being used. So I guess that's step number one, just knowing what the um, tricks are that are being played. And then step number two is much more difficult because um, it doesn't only apply to you as an individual who might be immune to certain tools, um, but it also revolves around how you can prevent other people from falling into those same traps. And that, as we see, is much, much more difficult right now. Um, and let me just give you an example there. So for a long time, um, our traditional news have not known how to respond to fake news. And I mean, fake news is a big word being thrown around by everybody. But traditionally, in journalism, people believe that in order to achieve truth or to obtain truth, you have to look at both sides of the story. and. That is deeply anchored into, you know, in Western philosophy. I think it started off with Hegel or even earlier with Plato, you know, that you have thesis and antithesis. And then the synthesis um, is as close as we as humans with limited minds can get to the truth. Um, and that has also been the modus operandi for news anchor men and news anchor women in recent times, you know, when you have an onslaught of misinformation. And it's only now that I'm seeing the tone of journalists shifting. Um, and I think the first time I saw this was just a month ago when a Australian politician, I forgot his name, was being interviewed on public television in Australia. And the anchor woman just cut him short and she would not give him, you know, the pleasure of using her, her plateau or her platform to spread his lies. And she has been very stern, you know, but also very polite about just preventing that person from sharing their misinformation. And she has received a lot of praise about that. So 
this has only been a month ago. So I'm seeing that um, the tone is shifting of how we deal with you know, dark storytelling, as I call it, being applied and shared in the media. But that's ongoing. And like I said, it's much, much harder um, to do that for society than it is for you as an individual. Yeah, I guess you, you can like learn to recognize the patterns that all mm. these uh, stories have and, and then base your judgment on that. But uh, how to make everybody understand that's uh, yeah. probably not, not possible. Oh yeah, and then uh, journalism also has this kind of, uh, yeah, you talk about the balance and it, you can think about it as a false balance, as if all the uh, ed uh, educated and not educated opinions are as valuable. And that, that brings of those the, the conflicts and uh, trouble for the traditional journalists to do how, how to handle those things. Uh, you also introduced an interesting path. Uh, and you said that, I think it was your own path from design to, to wherever. So you add design thinking to design, you get consulting, and then you add uh, storytelling to consulting, and then you get narrative design. Uh, yeah. What do you think about that path? Yeah, so it's the path of my uh, last decade or so. So it's been very exciting. And I think I've been figuring it out as I went along. And I think a lot of other people are doing that as well. So yeah, let me just start with my personal story. So, you know, when I started uh, studying design um, many years ago, <laughs> I didn't really know what I was in for. You know, I had a certain appetite, a certain curiosity, and um, I couldn't see how I was able to fulfill that anywhere. So I settled for um, a study program called communications design, which, you know, was still anchored in graphic design very much. And then design thinking happened. And design thinking, I mean, the origins are sort of debated. Uh, I think the most prevalent theory I know is that it sort of started off as a marketing stunt by IDEO. But what it essentially did was reapply design methods of visual literacy, of messaging, branding, et cetera, to not only selling an idea, but actually making the idea. And it's been a long process, uh, partly spearheaded by Philips, um, for designers to finally get a seat at the table, as they say. So nowadays, and Philips was one of the first companies to do so, designers are part of the board of directors, um, very high up in the hierarchy of the company. And that ensures that, you know, not only technology or business interests are driving innovation, but also design. And that's, you know, the, moment when I entered the professional uh, design scene here in Munich, which is a veritable design thinking hub. Um, if not the hub in Germany, then definitely one of the main major ones in Europe. And what I've seen happening over the last maybe four or five years is that storytelling has happened. And of course, storytelling um, right now is being understood as a sales tool, you know, somebody might come to you and say, hey, um, I really liked your presentation. I think the storytelling was really good. Uh, and they might mean that, you know, the pacing of your presentation was good and you had everyone's attention and you sort of brought a point across. Or somebody might say, hey, you're just such a good storyteller. You know, I just enjoy listening to you. And what they might mean is you have a good presence. You have um, a certain way of articulating thoughts of maybe building consensus. Um, and all of that is true, and that's been going on for a longer amount of time. But 
what I'm seeing right now is that storytelling is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. And it might be another catalyst that changes what it means to be a designer, just like design thinking was, let's say, 10 years ago. And the signals for change that I'm seeing is that um, there are just more and more and more stories out there. Um, the most typical one that I probably heard of first as a designer was user stories. So you would break down the functionality of a service or a product or a vision down into user stories. That means you know the user can do this uh, and then this happens and then you can hand that over to development and they build it. Then another thing that's happening is that we're writing more and more text as designers. So all of these UIs have text on them. Somebody has to write the text. And a really inspiring person I met last year at Push Conference, who was a fellow speaker there, is Scott Kuby. He talks about this very much, and I, I totally agree. And I think that idea has also gained support from John Maida, one of the grandfathers of modern design. So designers write stuff that other people read. And that's not only true for traditional UIs, it's also true for voice interaction. You know, So Siri says things, and somebody has to write those things for her. I mean, it's beautiful that people think she's real, but she isn't, you know? So she's made by people. And Siri, Alexa, you know, all of those have personality even, and that's really just based on the story that somebody has written for them. And then last but not least, um, another signal for change is the sheer size of the entertainment industry. I mean, now in uh, we're recording this uh, in the midst of another corona lockdown here in Germany. and I'm just watching so much TV, you know, and <laughs> somebody has to write all of those stories. Um, and you may know that the gaming industry has overtaken the movie industry, and the sky's the limit. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So long story short, I think storytelling is big, it's changing, and it's also changing our career as designers. And those were all very, very global things I just spoke about, but I'm also seeing that change happening in my work and the challenges that clients come to us with. Uh, and by us, I mean uh, STAR, which is a design consultancy here in Munich that I helped uh, build um, as a new dependency. And that's where storytelling for me really appeared to be a new vehicle for AI to work. So artificial intelligence is happening. More and more services have it. And it's kind of overwhelming for users. And you know, because with all of that complexity, all of that decision making, all of that data power happening in the background, um, can you even sort of trust a product anymore? Like what's happening behind the screen, you know, um, what's happening in that little computer brain? And people are really scared about that. And the first time I used storytelling to disperse fears of AI was on a project that happened uh, four years ago with a client of ours, uh, Neo, who make e-vehicles that are partly automated. And just imagine you know, a car that thinks for itself. Is that kind of creepy? I mean, Stephen King wrote a, a horror novel about this. Uh, I think it's called Christine. So a car, which is like a one, two ton hunk of metal, is like chasing down the street and nobody's sitting behind the steering wheel. And what's the car thinking? I don't know. You know 
and cars are being weaponized as well, you know? So, of course, this is all very drastic, but what I'm saying is that um, it can be a scary thought. And Neil understood that, so they created this little um, robot that lives inside the car and that essentially talks to the driver, um, managing their cognitive load, explaining some of the things that are happening in the car and really just putting face to AI. And that was just, you know, sort of a game changer experience for me. Uh, it's a project that I really think of very, very fondly. Um, it also won like a Red Dot Award this year and an IF Award. So it's been really, really cool. And it's also successful in the Chinese market that it was made for. So that was one uh, indicator for me that, okay, something is happening to storytelling. Uh, and oddly enough, I'm a part of it. And then the, the second big project that I uh, would like to mention is one about um, an insurance provider. Like, let's just say it's an insurance provider. It's still ongoing, so I cannot talk about it as freely as I would like to. But um, they had this idea of, or let me start by saying, insurances are also very, very data heavy, just like, you know, the car or a lot of other industries. You know, there's a lot of data floating around, and I, for one, don't want to manage it. You know, it's very important data. But I really have other stuff to do uh, than looking at tons of numbers or comparing contracts or whatever. And the idea the insurance provider had was, hey, uh, let's just turn this into a game. You know, like what if people could manage their health by spending time in the beautiful VR space, which is sort of fantasy inspired, and there's a lot of magical creatures, magical objects there. And as opposed to just showing people a number, you know, a tree would grow in a certain stuff like that. And I just find that so inspiring, you know, because here we are using storytelling to make it much easier for people to take care of themselves. And we're also using storytelling to reconcile a lot of odd aspects within, let's say, the insurance industry. You know, so... Um, there are a lot of sub-facets to the insurance industry, and somehow you need to find visual models that represent each in the best way possible. So let's say your health is a tree and it grows. Let's say the personal assistant is, I don't know, a sprite or a fairy or something. And somehow you have to bring all of those different metaphors together. And the best way to do that is, yet again, a story. So that's what I say what I think that design is changing once more. You know, with the complexity of new services, we as designers can use storytelling to make the complexity seem a lot, lot simpler, even if it's still very complex. Yeah, I, I think that the, at the end of your talk, you made a very good point about how, how the designers uh, are getting closer to fiction writers, because once you start to uh, deal or mess around with people's emotions, with your stories, then you you have to also take care of them. You can't betray those expectations and and those emotions that you create. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right, and that is something that happens in fantasy writing. Um, yesterday, I, I managed to sort of work my way through one of the worst movies I had ever seen. <laughs> it's called uh, Artemis Fowl. It's a horrible adaptation into a movie from a very, very, very successful book. And it has created 
outrage among the fan base that I can perfectly understand, you know, because the books have attracted a certain audience. Uh, people have invested a lot of time reading it, empathizing with the characters, and now they've completely flipped that on its head uh, and made a movie that has nothing to do whatsoever with the books. And that's, you know, one way in which you have to respect uh, the audience's emotions. Um, but there's also a more subtle way um, that is more relevant for designing for AI, for example. Um, so just imagine you buy a robot, let's say. And at some point, the robot runs out of energy and it just collapses onto the floor. Uh, and you essentially have a being sort of dying in your living room because you didn't charge it in time. Uh, that could be very, very disturbing. And it's a mistake that uh, manufacturers of consumer robots make. Um, so if you look at Pepper, for example, which is a very popular consumer robot in Asia, they spend a lot of time you know, building up its personality and its credibility as a being. It has certain gestures, a body language, it talks to you, so on and so forth. But they did not consider the off state. So whenever Pepper runs out of energy, it just slumps together and it looks like, you know, a hangman. Uh, it's really creepy, you know, and they were essentially starting a metaphor, making you invest time and emotions into that metaphor and then sort of letting you down. And then, you know, you have that dead robot at home. Um, that just doesn't cut it, right? Um, and I can also give you a positive example. Um, I think the first really successful consumer robot that I'm aware of um, is called Paro. I think it was developed in Korea to pay company to dementia patients. And it's a little cute robotic seal um, with big shiny eyes. And all it does is sit in people's laps and they pet it. So they caress the animal, the fake animal. Uh, they get an oxytocin shower, which is really good for their brains. You know, you get oxytocin where you're kind to people or um, have physical contact. So it's really good for the dementia patients to take care of that little white uh, fluffy thing in their laps, even if it isn't real. And the designers there were smart enough to consider the off state. So whenever Paro, the little seal, is running out of energy, you give it a little pacifier, you know, like uh, the little thing that a kid would suck on, and that charges it. And it looks very, very cute. Like, obviously, that's not how real seals behave, <laughs> but um, it's kind of keeping the metaphor together. You know, it's a living creature, living creatures are being petted, they use pacifiers. Uh, and by the way, they had a dog as the first design, but then it was too obvious to people, okay, a dog doesn't act like that. A dog doesn't use pacifiers, but seals are a little bit more alien to us. So I think they had some more latitude in terms of the metaphor they wanted to build. But again, they use storytelling to add a relatable layer on top of a machine. And in the case of Paro, the seal, they played that metaphor all the way to the end, respecting people's emotions. And in the case of Pepper, they only went halfway. So uh, you are telling stories not only as a design consultant, but you also write fiction, uh, kids' fantasy. How did you end up doing that? Yeah, good question. I mean, first of all, uh, I do that, but it's not a success story. So. <laughs> I cannot like uh, 
prove that I'm an actual writer with any awards I, I may have gotten uh, as I would with design. So it's an ongoing process. But I think um, it's just easier for me to do it than to not do it. You know, uh, I think that has to do something with like personal disposition. It's just something that happens to me. Um, but I think the thing that fascinates me about it is um, how it's so similar to the design process. Um, and it's really hard for me to keep the two apart. You know, so there's a lot that I learned while writing that I'm applying in design and vice versa. And one of the things that they share is, for example, you know, you have to have empathy. You can enter somebody's mind um, and then walk a mile in the shoes of, let's say, the user in the case of a design product or a mile in the shoes of, I don't know, uh, an alien teenager, you know, who... I don't know, has lost a leg or something, you know, in the case of a fantasy story. It's just uh, the the empathy is the same. But the cool thing is with fiction writing, you can just go much, much, much further. And as a designer, you are being used to working within given requirements. And you need to have them because otherwise your work ends up being too random. But, you know, you have requirements such as it has to work for this demographic. Uh, it has to cost this much. It has to take that long to operate. Um, and so on and so forth. It had to, has to be this big, this small. And that's cool. Um, you need that. But as a writer, the cool thing is you can make the problem and the requirements yourself, and then you also get to solve it. So that's really kind of weird, but um, it's also a lot of fun. And there's no uh, like uh, engineers uh, or technical restraints telling you that you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean... Uh, when you write a story, you know, you don't have to spar with, let's say, engineers as you would as a designer, but you, you do have to do some sparring between, let's say, the different characters. You know, so one person wants this and you want to make sure that the antagonist, like the villain in the story has a credible me uh, motivation and that makes them a regular stakeholder, just like, I don't know, your boss's boss uh, for a design project. Um, and then you have to consolidate that with what the protagonist wants and what they can possibly perceive. You know, so typically, or a very typical conflict that um, writers would have to solve in that regard is, let's say, the detective and the villain or the murderer in a story. You know, so the detective has to go through all of the ardor um, and jump through all of the obstacles to sort of find the villain and the murderer. So that means it's also not a random process, right? Because if the detective all of a sudden has a dream that tells them the truth, you're kind of cheating, you know? And that would be very, very similar to what a designer would do that ignores, you know, a technologist or whatever. So you have to bring together different viewpoints. But the fun is that um, you can sort of get to decide what the requirements are. And then what's even more challenging for writing is that in the end, it just has to be the super smooth, digestible sequence of information that you offer the reader. And in that regard, the story sort of is a stakeholder in its own right. You know, you want to make sure that it runs organically, that it's not random. So the consolidation process also has to happen. And you have to bring all of the stakeholders to the table, you know, the villain, the hero, the story. 
Um, and in some cases, it's actually more complex and hard, at least for me as a new writer, than in a design project. Because there's nobody else to tell you what's right and what's wrong. Um, and because you're drilling much, much deeper into what people do and want in your story, right? If you write a good story, it has to be about your most profound trauma or, you know, your deepest needs as a human being. Whereas if you design, all you want to do most of the time is just make it faster, make it smoother. So that's also a nice um, difference between the two. Like in design, you're trying to remove as much friction as you can. And in story writing, you're trying to add as much friction as you can and then remove it later. So it's really fun and they're very similar, but um, different enough to me for me to get a lot of inspiration by cross-pollinating them. Let's talk a little bit about your uh, work and, and business. What would you say is the biggest challenge right now that you are, are facing in your work? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, so maybe from the perspective of design agency, so we're a design agency, we're an independent consultancy. I guess the big biggest challenge right now is that um, a lot of design capabilities are being insourced. So that means that as opposed to just going to some random agency, um, let's say a company like BMW would decide to build their own in-house design team, and then they do the work uh, instead of us. And that that is a challenge, right? And that's why I think it's really important to stay relevant as an agency and to cultivate a way of thinking that is hard to replicate in a corporate environment. So. When we were talking about consulting and design thinking, um, which happened, let's say, 10 years ago, that is something that grew organically out of an agency environment that did not exist in corporations. And that is why, at least in Munich, we've had the golden age of consulting, if you will, you know, because um, independent companies had cultivated a mindset that only now corporations are able to imitate and insource and nurture themselves. So the question is, you know, what is going to be the next big thing, right? Like what um, can we as designers, especially as independent designers, have as an edge over our in-house colleagues? And my guess is that, you know, this storytelling or narrative design, as I call it, could be one of those things. Um, yeah, because I think storytelling design are now regarded as serious jobs. Um, when I see the profile of people who consider a design career right now, um, I don't see too much overlap with, with the people that I studied with back then. Because like I said, I started studying it for no particular reason, <laughs> except curiosity. And I certainly wasn't planning for any legitimate career or a good salary when I did that. But nowadays, uh, when um, within my network, you know, I talk to people who are considering a career or they're uh, interested in studying at my past schools, the profile is quite different. So the people are becoming designers in order to have a career. Um, and that certainly hasn't been the case 10 years ago. And I think that's another parallel between design 10 years ago as sort of the, the weird, ugly, you know, hobby thing that's kind of like art and 
storytelling and fiction writing nowadays, which is also regarded as less serious, uh, more poetic, softer, more emotional. So that could be a way in which um, the design industry is changing. Yeah. How can our listeners learn uh, more about you or get in touch with you if they want to know more? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, I have to admit that my online presence is horrible. Uh, and that's because I'm sort of scattered across so many different hobbies. So I'm not going to list um, my writing website. <laughs> and I'm also not going to, you know, mention my band project and what else. Um, but if you want to reach out to me as a designer, I think the best way to do that is via LinkedIn. So my name is Wolfgang Klein. I think I have a nice, uh, I think it's called Wolfgang Klein Design or something. But that's the best way to reach out to me via LinkedIn. Okay, and then it's time for our uh, final question is, uh, what does uh, creativity mean to you? I think for me, um, it's just accepting that other things are possible and somebody will have to make them possible. And that's creativity for me. And that's a very empowering thought, you know? So making a change. And what I'm seeing in a lot of people is, and that's especially true for people who are new in the career as a designer, um, they can envision the change and they can envision how things could be different. Let's say they kind of want to design an app concept or a certain service and they have it in their mind, but they cannot put it on the page. And that makes a lot of people really, really anxious. Um, so that's sort of the, the bad side of creativity. But if you're new to this profession, um, trust me, you're going to get there. Like, not only will you be able to imagine how something is different, you will also be able to get there. And as long as you don't give up, and as long as you use creativity as something that encourages action, as opposed to making you shy away from all of the big challenges out there, you're going to get there and you're going to have a lot of fun because like me, you're going to think in possibilities as opposed to limitations. And I guess that's what creativity means for me. Our thanks to Wolfgang and everyone at the Creative Mornings Munich team. This episode was produced and edited by me, Mark Lindgren at Huima Production. Our music was made by Sasha Ende. The additional sound was made by Winnie the Moog. You have been listening to The Pretzel, the Creative Mornings Munich podcast. Send us feedback by email to feedback at thepretzelpodcast.com. To find the show notes for this episode or to get new episodes right to your phone and your ears, visit thepretzelpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>